Tonight, we are going to be looking at the letter of 1 John. And so, why don't we start with a word of prayer, and we'll get right into it. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful letter. Um, and we ask, God, that as we look into it, that your Holy Spirit would, would make it accessible to us, Lord, that not just a lot of facts and information and theology, Lord, but just you would just make it something that touches us, that we can put our hands on and apply to our lives in a way that would be not only direction, Lord, but it would be just comfort and grace. We ask you for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the letter of 1 John is, um, is, is kind of interesting in so many, many different ways. It's considered to be one of the really obviously highlights of the New Testament, but it never tells us who the author is. He never identifies himself, although he writes in the first person. He speaks of I and we and so forth, but we're pretty sure that it was written by the Apostle John. And if it's not identified as such, why would we have that surety? Well, there are a number of reasons. Number one, the earliest uh, church writers that we can reference after what we call the apostolic period. The apostolic period refers to the time when the apostles were alive. And after that period was the period of what we call the church fathers, people beginning with a man by the name of Polycarp, who was a personal disciple of the apostle John, all the way up to Augustine, who was writing the fourth century, but people like Irenaeus and Tertullian and Origen and people that you may or may not be familiar with. But these men in the second and third, fourth and fifth century wrote extensively on the faith and quoted extensively from what they recognized as being the inspired texts of our New Testament. And so the church fathers, we find that nine different ones of them uh, reference or quote the, the, uh, the book of 1 John, including Polycarp. Um, all of the canons, in other words, a canon was an uh, organized list of what was believed to be the scriptures of the New and the Old Testament. Uh, there are four different ones that were compiled between 197 and 367 B.C. Every one of them always included, in fact, all of the canons always included John, so it tells us it was widely recognized as being an expired, inspired text. Four different church councils declared it to be part of the biblical revelation and so forth. So there's this, this very, very strong, long tradition within Christianity from the earliest years of the church. But also there's this enormous similarity in the style and the vocabulary between the Gospel of John and the letter of 1 John. If you read the Gospel of John, then read 1 John, and you say, boy, that sounds like familiar phrasing uh, or familiar terminology, you would be observing something that the Greek scholars long ago identified, that it's pretty clear that the same person wrote both of these books. Many of the words and phrases, in fact, are nowhere else found in the New Testament other than the Gospel of John and 1 John, which reinforces that idea. It's not just merely a coincidence. There's something very unique. But also the author himself makes claims for his authority. Uh, in other words, he says that I have seen, I've heard, I've touched Jesus. And so that really narrows the field, especially when we start talking about the late date in which this letter was written. But it's because of these reasons that the vast majority of scholars have, have pretty much concluded, as one wrote, he said, there's no reasonable doubt that John was the author uh, of this particular book. It's kind of like his fingerprints are all over it. Uh, the ancient historian, in fact, Eusebius, who wrote in the, about 300 A.D., um, said that it was written by the Apostle John in the city of Ephesus somewhere near the end of the first century. And this again would fit in with what everything we know because we know that the Apostle John was the basically the, the elder or the bishop or the lead pastor of all the churches of this Roman province referred to as Asia, an area that today we call Asia Minor or more specifically the country of Turkey in the Middle East. Um, we know that uh, the, the circulation of this letter was most prominent in that region where it first became evident. And so everything seems to fit together, that John probably wrote this 
when he was pretty old because he writes as the elder. In fact, he nine different times he refers to his readers as my dear children. This is his phrase of endearment, but he views them as being children, although uh, they were adults. So it's the guess is that John would have been at least in his 80s, maybe even potentially in his 90s. And it's interesting, there's an interesting grouping because we find that this letter, the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation, were all written about this same period of time. In fact, many believe that the book of Revelation may have been the first and earliest of the letters or writings of the Apostle John. He doesn't tell us who the audience is. Who is he writing to? Uh, it appears, though, that it's a circular letter. And what that means is a letter be written and it would be carried from city to city and read at different churches. So in the idea that you'd have a, a visiting or itinerating pastor who would go from church to church, uh, they simply would go into a fellowship and they would read this letter. In any given city there might be multiple house churches and they would go from house to house. And it appears that over a period of time, they begin to copy out their own copies. So when they would bring this letter, someone would sit down and copy down the letters so that the church would have its permanent record. And they took the idea of reading the scriptures in the most literal sense. They would pull these texts out and literally read them to the point where many within the congregation would have known them from memory. They had become so familiar. But the idea was to be constantly being instructed in the Word of God, developing a, a biblical worldview or way of looking at life through a biblical lens. So, but the question that gets really more to the meaning of the text is why was it written? Keep in mind, by the time this was written, Peter and Paul were gone. They had been dead for at least two decades, if not three. Uh, Jerusalem had been totally destroyed two decades or three decades earlier. And so the Jewish church that was there had been really dispersed and was no longer the center of Christianity. The Gentile church, and particularly it looks like Ephesus became really the center of Christianity. And the apostle John would have been, as one writer put him, the, the last living link, the last surviving apostle and living link to the apostles. So he would have held a significant authority within the early church and uh, would have been able to speak into the church in a very authoritative way. In fact, one commentator put this way, he says, in this apostolic vacuum, false teachers had arisen who were claiming new insights into Christ and uprooting the, up, uprooting the apostles' teaching. Now we find that all false theology tends to err on one side or the other with regards to Jesus. They either depreciate Jesus or they over-exaggerate him. <laughs> but they, they, they create this kind of crazy issue. And in a way, the, the theology that we believe was really being presented or actually was seeing its first expression in the church in Ephesus was the, the one that did both of these things in, at the same time. John never tells us what the theology is. In fact, Paul never identified any false teaching. In fact, they may not have had a terminology. They, many of the labels we give these false heresies now were basically applied later on as scholars studied them and their development. In the early days, they didn't seem to have a chance, but yet there is a, a survivability of many of these doctrines that it even carries it into our present practices within Christianity today. But what John does do is he gives us some interesting insights. In other words, what we look at what he criticizes and condemns, and we can begin to see what was going on that really related to that particular doctrinal error. And the first thing he talks about is a misunderstanding or really a rejection of what we call the incarnation of Jesus incarnate literally means in flesh. When we talk about the incarnation of Christ, uh, it's really uh, basically saying Jesus coming or, or Christ becoming a man, the Word of God becoming flesh, John said, and dwelling amongst us. Uh, it appears that these individuals rejected the idea that the Christ took on a human form, came in human flesh. And that's why we find, for example, in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul, uh, John makes this statement. He says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus. Now, notice the change in word. Acknowledges that Christ has, become, has come in flesh, and anyone who doesn't recognize Jesus, keep in mind that Jesus is the name that was given the physical body that the Word of God, that God inhabited. And essentially, he says that they don't recognize that Jesus is divine, is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Uh, it explains really the unusual way that John starts the letter. In verse 3 of chapter 1, he says, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, our hands have touched. In other words, he begins by telling us that the Word of God had real physical presence, had real physicality, had a real body. He wasn't just an apparition that appeared. He was a person that God became embodied in the body of Jesus. Um, so this seems to be the first error that they had fallen into, that they essentially were saying Jesus was a spirit and the, or the Christ spirit is separate from the man Jesus. More on that in a moment. Uh, secondly, he talks at length about the love of God. And what he says is that God is love, and this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through them. This is love, not that we love God, but they loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The particular heresy that we'll be talking about a little bit more in a moment did not believe in the atonement. They believed in enlightenment. Don't worry, I'll explain that distinction to you in a moment. But here again, it really gives us a little hint because he starts off by saying, uh, God loves us. God is a God of love and he revealed his love by sending his son in the form of Jesus into the world. But secondly, he goes on, the result, response that we should have to that is that we love one another. Verse 11 in chapter 4, he says, Dear friends, since God so loved us in sending his son, we also ought to love one another. And then he goes on in chapter 2, verse 11, he had said, this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, and this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. Again, these people would take Jesus Christ and they would separate them as two separate distinct entities. The bottom line is finally saying, in contrast, these men don't love God, they don't love their brothers, but what they do love is the world. So he says in chapter 2, verse 15, uh, do not love the world or anything that is in the world. When he uses this term world, he's talking about the world system. And what do we mean by the world system? We mean the way this, the physical world, the material world we live in functions. That, you know, that the evolutionists described as survival of the fittest. It, it's not an inappropriate description that we look at the way the world functions and there's, there's this pressing of, of not just self-preservation but selfish ambition. James condemned that behavior. He said that's of the world, this selfish ambition. And that's what he's talking about. There's a system that, that really kind of operates within the world of mankind that is very predatorial. It preys on others and, and, and takes advantage of others in order to advance themselves. In fact, uh, Mark and I were just having a little discussion about athletics, professional athletics. And, you know, right now there's a, we're in the NBA playoffs and a lot of key players like Stephen Curry and other guys are, are, are getting injured. And the reason is because the season is so stinking long. Their bodies just can't hold up. We, we see the same thing in football where it went from 12 games in a season to 16 games. And all of us who are addicts to the sports, we sit there and go, wasn't oh, this great? But the guys whose bodies are being destroyed are finding their careers are getting shorter and shorter because they just can't take the pounding. Now you'd sit back and say, we need to go back to a shorter season because these guys just can't physically endure this. But we won't. You know why? Because ESPN and ABC and NBC and CBS and all these other companies are paying hundreds of millions of dollars and more games you have, the more revenues you make, the more revenues you make, the richer people get. And then you sit back and go, 
the concern isn't for the welfare of individuals. The concern is the generation of more profits for certain key individuals or corporations or organizations. That's not a surprise to any of us, is it? Isn't that how it works? <laughs> you know, so he, he's basically saying they love this world system. They are working it. They are manipulating it. They are using it. And so he goes on. He says, he, uh, this is, excuse me, uh, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And this is where we find, again, the challenge comes for us, isn't it? Because we can look at the world and say, I want to win in this system. But he said, the goal of the Christian isn't to win in this world. The goal of the Christian is to earn heaven or to, to uh, have heaven given to us. So that there is a, really a conflict because when you begin to follow the Lord, you find very quickly that you're suddenly confronted with choices where you make, if you follow Christ, you may lose by the world system. You're almost in an antithetic relationship many times with the way the world operates, and now you're having to choose to follow Jesus. And this is the dynamic he's talking about. He says, these guys know nothing about the Father's kingdom, the Father's will, the Father's way. And then he adds, for everything in the world, and this is what he describes in the system of mankind, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has does not come from the Father but from the world. So it's this idea of, of craving after more, of looking and always wanting, and being proud of what we accomplish as being the, like the saying goes, he who dies with the most toys wins. Or in this case, the most apple stock. You know, the idea is that somehow you become now the winner at life because you've earned this. This is this whole system. And he says, here's the contrast. Those who love God are not living for that system. They're living for God. And they're willing to pay the price that comes with following God. But these men, even though they wrap it in spiritual language and packaging, are all about getting ahead in this world and getting as much of this world as they possibly can. The third thing that he identifies in here is the issue of sin. And within this false theology, there appears that they, to say that they were light on sin would be a misnomer. They seem to actually have a permission to engage in sinful activity. And to that we find John counters in chapter 3 verse 9 by saying, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. Now this is where most of us begin to sweat. Because we look at ourselves and go, whoa, <laughs> what happened? Well, Again, we lose in the translation some of the subtleties of verb structure that's being used here because I love the way the Amplified amplifies it. In fact, what it says is uh, anyone who deliberately, knowingly, and habitually practices sin, uh, he says, because God, he, uh, who knows God, can't continue in it. In other words, it's this durative or duration of life that you're defined by your sinful behavior. And th that's why he goes on, he says, because you can't do that because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning. And here the idea, he cannot continue to live in sin deliberately, knowingly, and habitually because the Holy Spirit will make you so stinking miserable you'll get tired of resisting God and you'll repent. And so he says, because he has been born of God. And then he says, this is how we know the children of God, who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. In other words, he says, you know them by their works. You know them by their actions. It doesn't matter that they say, well, I know God. And they may say it in the most eloquent and interesting way. But he says, if you look at their life and nothing changes, then they don't know God. And that's the idea that if the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, greater is he later on in chapter 5, greater is he who is in us than the force that's in the world. Now, people who don't know Christ are taken captive by the devil, Paul said in Ephesians 4, to do his will. So he's drawing this line and saying, just look at their life. Don't get caught up in what they say. Look at how they live their life. If they know God, they are going through the change process. So the fact that I see sin in myself, in fact, later on or earlier on in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar. 
But he says if we continue to live a sinful life without repentance, without purification and change, then we don't know God. So it's a very important distinction to make because I know that many Christians have beaten themselves almost to death over these passages because they haven't understood the subtlety of the distinction that John is making here. Um, so what is this heresy that, that we think it was all about? Well, it's about this same time that a man by the name of Serinthus uh, began teaching an interesting theology. He took, Bibli he took uh, Christianity and he began to blend it with uh, a uh, Greek philosophy called Gnosticism and created what we now refer to as Christian Gnosticism. There are in the world today people who are Gnostics they're not Christians, they're just Gnostics and they follow the ancient Gnostic philosophy. And as we explain what it is, you'll probably say, I think I know some of these people. Because a lot of people hold a Gnostic theology and don't even realize it. But he blended it with Christianity and he came up with uh, something odd, a, a kind of a chimera. You know what a chimera is? It's like, it's like a person who has the, the head of a, uh, of a pastor and the body of a crab. You know, it's just uh, these things don't go together. You know, it's just something's wrong here. And, and uh, it's, it's an unnatural blending together of things. But basically he taught seven things. Number one, he taught that, that God the Father, the God of the Old Testament, was the evil demiurge. What's a demiurge? Demiurge is, is basically a lesser god of, of, of a low moral character. So the god of the Old Testament, the one who created the heavens and the earth, is not the same as the god of the New Testament, which he said is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ is the good God and the Old Testament God was the bad God. So he began to break the Old Testament away from the New Testament and we'll find that he didn't just, didn't just stop there. His followers didn't stop there. But that's the first place where they began to get in trouble because they began to misidentify who God was. But secondly, because the material universe was made by the evil demiurge of the Old Testament, then matter is evil and spirit is good. So they look at the physical world and say the physical world is evil, the material world is evil. This is essentially what the Gnostics taught because that's why they looked to enlightenment to lift them above the material world and separate themselves from it. The thirdly, they said, therefore Jesus, the man, because he had a body and was material, therefore he was not God, he couldn't be divine. And so that Jesus was a man just like any other man. But fourthly, that the thing that made him different was that the Christ spirit descended upon him. Now I don't know, have any of you read The Last Temptation of Christ by Nikos Kazantzakis? Or he, there was a really horrible movie that, that uh, Michael Scorsese made about this too. Anybody see this? You ever read that? I'm the only one in the room. Well, good for you. Um, it's actually quite a famous book in the 50s. It was quite a classic, you know, people really loved it. But what in, this, in the story, he basically presents Gnostic theology and he portrays Jesus as being just this, this simple carpenter just going along, living his life, you know, trying to just get along as best he could get along. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls upon him. And he said it was like, like a, an eagle would blanch his, his fangs, his talons into his head and demand until finally he takes him over and expresses himself through this poor victim called Jesus. And then right before Jesus is, d d dies on the cross, the Spirit leaves him so that the man Jesus died on the cross and God separated him from that evil matter. It's a, as a non-Christian, I read this in college, and, and I, even then I thought, that's a wacky book. But how surprised I was as I began to study some of these theologies that essentially Nikos Kazantzakis was a Gnostic and he was presenting Gnostic Christianity. In fact, um, the Coptic church, Christian church in Egypt is essentially Gnostic in their theology as well. In other words, they believe that Jesus didn't really have or Jesus, uh, the Christ didn't have a body. He just appeared to have a body, but he really wasn't. That Jesus was just an apparition. Not surprisingly, that's the same view that Islam 
takes of Jesus because we know that the, the, Muhammad had been exposed to Gnostic theology and so he developed his views and his theology about Jesus, Jesus and paradise from Gnostic theology. But I'll explain in a moment here. So basically, how does a person get saved? Well, they wouldn't even talk about saved because first of all, they said there's no such thing as sin. There's no such thing as sin. Your, your material body is just this functional organism. It, you know, it doesn't sin. It just functions. So there's no sin to be atoned for. What you need to do is become enlightened so that your spirit can enter into these higher levels. They had seven levels that you would ascend to to get higher and higher until you were released from the material world and you could begin to experience uh, pure spirit or pure God. You became one with God. So they didn't believe atonement, the idea that God paid for your sins through the death of His Son on the cross, you basically became enlightened. Uh, The sixth thing that they taught was that Christ at His second coming will establish the millennial reign, thousand year reign, but it will be a reign of unlimited sensual pleasure. So in Islam, when you hear about, you know, you, you, the, the, if you're a shaheed, you're a martyr, that you get to go to heaven and you have, you know, 72 virgins that uh, are condemned to wait on you for all of eternity. I mean, <laughs> I often wonder what the 72 virgins do wrong to get that job. You know, it's like <laughs> only a guy could come up with this kind of theology, right? Anyway, <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> oh man, you must have been really bad, lady. <laughs> but that's where they got this, was from Serenthus's first century heresy, that it was all about sensual pleasure, that that's what the millennial reign of Christ is. Now, if you've read Revelation or, or Isaiah and different prophets saying, that doesn't sound like what I read in the Bible, that's because they didn't stick with the Bible. In fact, that's where they really the seventh thing is that they believed that they had supplemental teachings from a higher knowledge than spirit or the apostles. That they had, they had ascended to higher levels of consciousness than did the apostles. Now, like I say, this is not something new. The, but these guys began to write and publish by, by the late 2nd century, uh, the 3rd and the 4th century, they began to write their own scriptures. The first thing they did was they took the, the, the New Testament and they created a, a, a canon and they selected certain books. They, they liked Luke, they rejected the rest of the Gospels. Really didn't like the Gospel of John. So their Gospels include Luke, the book of Acts, and the, uh, some of the letters of Paul. And that's about it. They left everything out, especially 1 John. And so they said, these are the ones that we read. And then they began to give their novel interpretations. You know, it's kind of like uh, some say Christian science or even Mormonism, which has their uh, secondary edition, you know, that, that you have to read that along with the Bible. And after a while, you're reading their book and not the Bible at all. And you begin to realize because they don't agree. And that's kind of what they did because eventually they began to write their own gospels that conformed to their theology. And you may have heard of some of them. Uh, the Gospel of Mary, which was first uh, discovered in Egypt in 1896. The Gospel of Thomas, uh, the Gospel of Truth, the Gospel of Philip, all which were basically found in a place called Nag Hammadi in Egypt in 1945. And uh, in fact, there was also the Gospel of Judas, which... Uh, um, National Geographic paid $2 million to have it, uh, an updated translation of that so that they could publish it on the heels of the Da Vinci Code. There's even the Coptic Gospel of Egypt and a whole lot of different other writings that they have that were written la- at later periods purporting to be uh, by biblical authors. What's what we call them? We refer to them as pseudograph false writings is the term. In other words, they claim authorship that we know uh, isn't accurate. They weren't actually the authors. Mary Thomas, uh, uh, Philip, Judas, never wrote any of these writings. But they present the gospel in a different way. And that's the basis of, for example, Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code, is all based upon these Gnostic Gospels. Another one, Elaine uh, Pagels, um, who, who's a big authority on Gnostic Gospels, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and several other different books by Michael Bajant and people of that nature. They all um, basically have tried to promote the idea that these Gnostic Gospels are 
another version of Christianity. Uh, they've almost got it right. It's not another version. It's another perversion of Christianity, but it was always a, a small minority uh, group. But we even find it greatly influenced. As I said, the Coptic Church in Egypt is essentially strongly influenced in their theology by the Cop by uh, Gnosticism. If you've ever heard of the Theosophical Society or Madame Blavatsky or the Theophysists and people like that. They were agnostics. Carl Jung, the psychologist, was a, a believer in Gnostic theology and so forth. The idea is that there is no such thing as sin and that what you need to do is allow the Christ within you to arise and lift you into higher levels of awareness and consciousness. In fact, they would read passages where it says that Christ will come and, and the clouds will part and, and, the, and the, the world will see the Son of Man. They'll say, well, what that really means is the clouds of your mind will begin to separate and you'll see that you are the Christ. And like Shirley MacLaine did, you'll stand on the beach and say, I am God. And the waves roared back, no, you are. <laughs> so <laughs> I just don't know why a giant wave didn't just come and consume her at that moment. Uh, God is mercy. That's all I can say. So anyway, I hope I didn't overwhelm you with this, but this was probably the first beginnings, and this is John's response. And what's interesting is the arguments of John are the same arguments that we use today <laughs> in confronting these theologies. That John is essentially saying what we need to real understand is, number one, we're all sinners. Don't try to say you're not. Number two, we needed a savior and Jesus, God, sent, God sent his son to become a man to die on the cross that our sins might be paid for. That's to atone for our sins. It's the only way we can be saved. That God is light, God is love, and God is life itself through the person of Jesus Christ. What would be, the, in my mind, the key verse here? Well, uh, chapter two, verses three and four read this way. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, why did I pick that passage? Well, the word know, or literally the Greek word gnosko, which is the verb, uh, a root verb to the word gnostic, is used 38 times in this letter. 38 times John said, Gnosko, we know, we know, we know, we know. And it's held up in contrast to the Gnostics that says, we have this higher knowledge. John says, we have actual knowledge. Because the word Gnosko means experiential knowledge. Knowledge that comes from experience. That's why he opens by saying the, the very word of life. We saw him, we heard him, we touched him. He was real, he was a man, he was God incarnate, real life. We know that from our own experiences and not based upon some supposed revelation that you had after eating a, a tainted batch of marinara sauce or something some night. Anyway, so which brings me to uh, the outline of the book. And quite honestly, as, as Zane Hodge said, it's, it's uh, notoriously difficult to outline the book of John. The best way I can describe John is it's written like waves coming in off the ocean. You know, something about watching waves come in, they're very, it's very soothing, very cathartic. There's something that the mind kind of goes to a restful place when you sit there and watch the waves come in in their, in their circuits. But, you know, it's one of those kind of things, try to outline a wave. <laughs> and just when you begin to think you see one and it's beginning to break, there's another one that rises up. And it's kind of the way John writes this. I have this picture in my mind of this aged man sitting down with a scribe and he just starts talking. He just says, let's talk about this false teaching. And he just rolls with it. And he's not concerned about uh, writing some classic piece of literature. He is simply expressing from his heart the truth of the gospel. And it kind of just comes in these kind of waves, sometimes overlapping one upon another. And he, it seems like sometimes the, the wave will curl and pull up something that was there before and reintroduce it again. So that trying to break that down is, is really, really difficult. In fact, it's harder to outline than the book of James. 
or the book of Proverbs. Those are the three books of the Bible that every time I think about teaching on them, I think, oh my goodness, how am I going to break this into an outline? Because they don't fit neatly into little boxes. Paul's letter, a cinch. Paul is a linear thinker, man. He just goes right down the line and lays one point, and each point connects to the next point, and it's, it's pretty easy to outline Paul. But Proverbs, James, and John, those books are really, First John, are really, really challenging in terms of just trying to outline. Uh, but fortunately for you, I came up with the perfect outline. So, I mean, you're, this is your lucky day. You are so fortunate to be here at this moment. I, I can't, I'm starting to sound like that political candidate, aren't I? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay. Uh, how do I outline it? Well, very basically, I break it into three sections. Chapters one and two is, I call it walking in the light. Chapter three and four, walking in love. Chapter five, walking in life. And I take those from the statements that are made, God is light, God is love, and uh, if you believe on Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life. But let's look at it real briefly as we summarize this book. He begins in in verse 5 of chapter 1 by saying, this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. So John is saying, let's be really clear on what the gospel actually is. Let's be simple about it. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So why does he begin there? Because he's saying, you know, they would talk a lot about light and enlightenment, but what is darkness? Immorality is darkness. They're saying, well, there is no such thing as right or wrong. There's no immorality. There's no sin. He says, but we know intuitively that there are bad things that people do. And with bad consequences for them and often for other people as well. And the Bible calls that behavior sin. He says, in God there is no darkness. God does not endorse sinful disobedience or hurtful behaviors. He goes on and says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, in other words, we, and the word koinonia here, again, is, is this intimacy of relationship. It, it's, it's almost, I have, you know, in the most basic way, I have koinonia with my wife. We share every aspect of our life together. And if you claim to be one who's sharing your life with Jesus, he says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness. Now here again, what does the word walk mean? It means to live or to deport oneself, as one commentator put it, to follow, to go about, to be occupied with. In other words, walking with someone, with God, is not simply, in the writer's sense, the idea that you just happen to be going in the same direction. But it means that there is such an intimacy and a closeness that you become inseparable in life's journey that you're, the walk that we have is an inseparable journey together uh, as he leads us into the will of the Father. He says if we walk in darkness and yet we say we have that kind of intimacy with God, um, he says uh, we lie and do not live by the truth, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us. Purity doesn't come from enlightenment. It comes through atonement from all sin. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then he says, one of my obviously favorite passages I I use all the time, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I always like to point out to people saying, what, what part do we do? What's our job? What what's the role do we play in this redemptive work? He says, we, if we confess that we're sinners, that's it. All I can do is admit the truth. God, I am a sinner. If I will admit that I am a sinner, he then in response to that, because he is faithful and because that means he keeps his word and because he's just, because the requirements of my sin have been met through the death of Jesus on the cross, because he is faithful and just and will forgive us, not might forgive us or get around to it when he gets a chance, but he will immediately automatically forgive us of our sins And not only that, but purify us from all unrighteousness. So that when I come to God and say, Lord, forgive me for my sins, He not only removes 
the judgment of sin from my life. It is no longer a factor in God's determining his goodness and blessing in my life. He removes that from me and he pours his blessing, his grace upon me and he begins a work of changing me. So many times I, I see people like you and me beating ourselves up because we're trying to change. I need to change. I need to be different. And we get frustrated because even though we've determined that we're going to be different and we're going to change and we're going to do the right things and avoid the bad things, how long does it take before you slip back into the old patterns again? And it's because we're trying to will through our own physical, mental, emotional strength change. Flesh begets flesh, Jesus said. <laughs> That's all that my flesh can do. Whether it's my intellectual flesh or my emotional flesh or my physical flesh, all I can do is, is produce after its kind. So that many people, really all they're doing is trying to develop a more disciplined life, but not a transformed life. They're, they're trying to rejuvenate the old car. Now, I, I'm always impressed by people who can take old cars and, and, and renovate them into these beautiful, uh, you know, it's as nice as it was in 1958. But then you take it for a drive and you realize, you know, in 1958, those cars weren't all that nice. <laughs> they didn't have a radio. They didn't have air. They didn't have, oftentimes the heaters didn't work. They didn't have power steering. Uh, they had a manual transmission that sometimes didn't quite sink or mesh. I mean, I, mean, I don't want to tear down. If, you, if you're into that, I, I, I'm amazed by your skill level. And I'd say this out of pure envy and jealousy, Okay. But the truth of the matter is any new car is 10 times better in terms of something you're going to drive or take a trip in. You're not going to drive that across country if you're in your right mind. <laughs> Unless you have a trailer full of parts behind you that you're going to take with you. <laughs> and that's kind of the way it is. We're trying to renovate this sinful wreck. We're trying to make this, raise this thing up to the standard of new and improved and we never quite get there. That's why God says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind by the Holy Spirit. That God is, God changes what you do. So that, you know, it's one of the most important things about going on a diet is changing your appetite. Not an easy thing to do. Even to this day, I walk by a chocolate stand at the mall and it talks to me. It's calling out to me. The fudge is saying, I need you. you know? I, mean, I, I wish I could say, well, I just, it's just willpower. It isn't willpower, it's my wife. <laughs> That's the only thing that keeps me from just buying a pound and shoving it in my face. Literally shoving it in my face. No. God changes the appetite because suddenly what you hunger after is righteousness. What you hunger after is God. So when I think about even like a morning to morning, like a day to day, I get up early in the morning, I'm sitting there reading the word, spending time with God. I thought, why am I doing this? And there's something inside of me that says, how could I not do this? I mean, I, 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 I read, this is what I do. The only thing that, that comes before that is coffee. And the only reason that comes before it is because I need to be able to get my eyeballs open, you know? But other than that, it's, if I didn't have the coffee, I would still do it because your word is life. That comes through the transformation work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. You, you don't create that. You don't generate that. That appetite for God comes from God. And this is what John is trying to communicate. So he says that if we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in us. The Greek there literally en, E-N, <laughs> we would transliterate it, literally means it denotes position and instrumentality. His word has position inside of us and it is an instrument that is working on the inside. So have you ever found sometimes you just read the Bible and you get done, you go, you know, I'm not sure I remember anything I read, but I feel fed. It's because his word is coming in and it's, it's, it's feeding your soul. And that's why I tell people, you know, it's great to understand it, but if you don't understand it, read it anyway because it will feed your soul and you'll grow as a consequence. So 
Chapter 1 and 2, short, basically, walk in the light because He is a God who dwells in light and there's no darkness in Him. If you don't walk in the light, then you're in the darkness and you'll very quickly realize what it's like to be in the darkness. Number two, in verse chapter 3, he says, walk, that means therefore that you walk in love. He says, in verse 16 of chapter 3, he says, this is how we know what love is. Okay, what does love look like? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And then he adds, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. We assume that these guys talked a lot about love, but there wasn't a lot of performance out of it. That's not unusual. But he says, it goes on in chapter 4 to say why this is so important. He says, God is love. He says this twice in chapter 4. God is love. He says, we know and rely upon the love that God has for us. I don't rely upon my self-discipline. I don't rely upon my devotion or my commitment to Christ. I rely on His love for me. I depend on His love for me to enable me to live successfully in Christ. Because he goes on and says, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Therefore, he says in verse 11 of chapter 4, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And that's interesting phrasing because he says, what you understand is this is consequential. The consequence of understanding that God loves me produces a response or a behavior of love towards other people. So that when I see myself not being loving towards somebody else, where I need to look at the solution to that problem isn't the other person. They need to become more lovable. Isn't that what we say? No. What I need to realize is somehow my relationship with God has been short-circuited. I need to go back and rediscover where did I stop loving God and experiencing His love for me so that as a consequence I love that person. You know how easily that works out? Because usually when we're angry with other people and not loving them, it's because we feel like they have hindered us from something important in our life. But when I understand that God loves me so much that nobody can interfere with what God wants to do in my life, then no matter what that person does, doesn't matter anymore. It's no longer a point of anger or frustration. That's just their issue. But God loves me and nothing can stand in the way of that. And that's why John says, you can take your own temperature, spiritual, and see where you're at because if you find yourself feeling really hateful and angry feelings towards another person, there's a failure to grasp the perfection of God's love for you in your life. Martin Luther put it really well. He says, you know, he says, uh, uh, all a stone has to do is lay in the sun and absorb the heat to become warm. And essentially that's, that's what it is. We, we allow God's love to radiate our soul and suddenly we emanate that radiation. It's something that comes out of us. It's not something that we conjure up. Do I struggle against Things like lovelessness and hate and anger and resentment, those things. Do I struggle? Of course I do. But the answer to that isn't by willing myself to love somebody that I don't. The answer is to go back and say, God, restore me and renew me and refresh me in how much you love me because if I am bathed in your love, I can't help but love you. I, I found this really interesting. I started, suddenly this worked in my brain one day and I started changing the way I prayed for people. I said, God, I pray that, because believe it or not, I know it's hard to believe, but there's some people who really dislike me. And, you know, and it, that usually really bothered me. And I thought, you know, God, I wish you would just pour such blessing and joy and love and grace upon their life, so overwhelm them with waves of your goodness that they wouldn't have any room left in there to not like me. Because that's what's missing, isn't it? We love each other when we know that we're loved by God. (laughs) And when we're not loving somebody, it's because we think that somehow we've been cut off from his love. I hope this makes sense. It makes sense to me. And right now, that's all that matters. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just joking. I'm either joking or running for president. I'm not sure which. But, anyway, <laughs> but finally, in chapter 5, he says, you know, we, we talk about walking in the light, walking in love, walk in life itself. And he says in verse 13 of chapter 5, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. What is the name of the Son of God? It's Jesus. 
okay? I'm writing in the name of, of Jesus so that you may know that you have eternal life. In verses 1 through 5 before this, he says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. How do I define believe? I put it as be live. <laughs> to me, be, be alive. That's what it means to, be, to believe. It means I, I live in what I am, and what I am is I'm a child of God. He says, for everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. And this love for God, this is love for God to obey His commands. And His commands aren't burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that God became incarnate. So the next time somebody says to you, well, what difference does it make if Jesus was God's Son Read chapter 5 of 1 John and say, listen to this. Here's the reason, because it's the only way you can get to heaven. Who said it? The guy who saw him, touched him, <laughs> heard him with his own ears. He says that you might believe that he's the Son of God. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for this word. I, 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 just, um, I thank you that you preserved this moment in which the apostle uh, allowed your Holy Spirit to speak and to teach through him and to preserve it for us today that we could read it tonight, that we could look at it and we could experience this message of life. Lord, we pray that, that uh, we would seek to, we would live in the light simply because we are seeking after you. That we are not the source of light, we are simply those who experience it and reflect it. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to to know that that reflection expresses itself in perfect love. And Lord, I pray that we would make that the way that we live our lives. Give us this grace, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand as we close together?